0: We're going to take a step back this morning and kind of view it all again broadly uh, before we move into uh, the next uh, next part of chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And so uh, let's read this together this morning. I invite you to read with me. I'll try to set the pace, uh, and let's read verses 3 through 14 together. Ephesians chapter 1. Are you ready? Here we go. until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Amen. So as we finish up this time, like I said, I want to kind of take a step back, look at this broadly again. There are several things that I want to make sure that you grab before we move on. And when we first walked through this, we said that what... Paul is establishing here, and even though this uh, passage of Scripture is very doxological in nature, that means that really what Paul is doing right at the outset of this letter, right, right after he kind of says, this is who I am, Paul, an apostle of God, by the will of God, to the church in Ephesus, he, he breaks into praise. And so we need to recognize that that what Paul is doing here essentially is just him breaking out in praise and adoration and and glorifying God and who He is and what He's done in the work of redemption. So this praise that's coming out of Paul and he's pinning here on these pages is a praise to God for what He's done in redeeming us in the work of salvation. And as all good doxology should be, this doxology is very theological in nature, right? Uh, there was something beautiful about how that we sang this morning the truths of Scripture. We weren't just singing, "Here's how God makes me feel, rah rah rah, Rishkamba." We were singing the truths of Scripture, straight out of Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, straight out of Romans chapter 5. And here Paul is, is, is praising God, but his praise is more than just feeling. He's praising God for the truths of what he has done in Christ and applied to him by the Holy Spirit. That's a challenge to us in our prayer. It's a challenge to us in our worship. Amen? And so one of the things that we keep seeing over and over again through this this doxology is Paul keeps coming back to in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Him. Over and over and over again, Paul is showing us that this work of redemption, this, this work of salvation is being accomplished in Christ. It's being done in Christ. And as such, Paul is pounding into us that we have a new identity because of who we are in Christ. And so you may hear people from time to time as you get together and you study the Word, as you begin to uh, come together and, 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 and begin to live out the rhythms of confession and repentance and reconciliation together. And you may hear us talking together about Uh, wanting to understand better who we are in Christ or wanting to know what our identity is in Christ. And, And I just want you to know that you do not have to go on a backpacking trip through Australia to figure out who you are in Christ. You don't have to buy a plane ticket to go to some other place in the world to find out what your identity is in Christ. Let me tell you how far you have to go. You need to open up your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And that's why we've been going through this, so that you could begin to understand what your identity is in Christ. So let's take one last look at this whole passage and see exactly who we are in Christ. Why? Because identity is everything for us as human beings. What is identity? Identity is who we believe ourselves to be. Your identity is who you believe yourself to be. And every single one of us identify in different ways, times, and places with different things because we are trying to associate ourselves with something so that the world will perceive us the way that we want to be perceived. The problem with that in the Church of Jesus Christ is that's the world's economy. That's how the world says you become something, is that you become something by doing something or by buying something so that you uh, present yourself to the world as the kind of person who does these things, right? Now, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I am. I am uh, somehow removed from this. This affects me too. I would love the world to think that I'm the kind of person that goes surfing because I love surfing. There's only one problem with that. I've never surfed before in my life. I've tried. I've paid for lessons and showed up on multiple times, and God in his providence, for whatever reason, probably to save my neck, made sure that for whatever day, that, the sea was like glass on that day. So I've never surfed. A lot of people can't believe that, I, because I, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm like this, I, yeah, California, man, hang loose, let's go. I, I've never surfed before in my life, Okay. And there are other things and times and places of my life where I've tried to present myself to be a certain way so that people would perceive me in the way that I wish to be perceived. But that's the world's economy. And the Bible says that, that we, our identity is formed in a different way. So the world says you have to do in order to become. But the Bible would say that it is by understanding who God is and what He has done that informs who you are. And then once we figure out who we are, now we can begin to do the things that flow from who we are in Christ because of who God is and what He's done for us in Him. Amen? Amen. Your identity today, who you perceive yourself to be, is shaped by the dominant story in your life. The circumstances and situations that have led up of every day of your life leading up to this day have informed to you what, who you are. And the enemy has tried to use that as well. So, so don't ever forget that there is a false teacher in your life. And it's the enemy. And he's trying to preach to you on the daily a message about who you are because of the things that have happened in your life. But even the things that have happened in your life are not the things that define who you are. The things that have happened that need to define you are the things that God has done in history. Namely, the history of redemption, what Paul is pointing to us here. In our missional communities, one of the things that we're going to be learning together is what the dominant story of our lives is and how that the gospel not only speaks into that dominant story, but how that the gospel can be used so that that story can be used to preach the gospel to others. And today I want to show you who you are in Christ so that you can begin to preach to yourself about this new identity. So when you came to faith believing in Jesus Christ's sacrificial atonement for you and in your place by a gift of grace, a gift of God's grace applied to you by the Holy Spirit because the Father adopted you, uh, predestined to adopt you before the foundation of the world that you should be His child, you became something. The day that God revealed Himself to you in such a way that your eyes were opened to see Jesus Christ not only as a Savior, not only as the Savior, but as your Savior, you became something, something new and something living, a new creation by the Word and work of God through the application of redemption to your life. And you now have a new identity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, that the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ by his word and through his work. You have a new identity. If that that does not describe your experience, and I have good news for you today, you can experience that today. You can experience what it means to become a new creation today if you will, by a work of God's grace, believe in the gospel. So what what is your new identity? First of all, it all flows from this one phrase that Paul keeps repeating over and over and over again, in Christ. In Christ, what, what is your primary new identity? Your primary new identity is that you are in Christ. But what does that mean? So let's take a look. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus describes the union between himself and his followers. And he says in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, he says this, I am the true vine. My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full." So what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that we have been grafted into Him like a branch that is grafted into a tree or into a vine. He becomes the one through which life flows into us. There is a kind of inseparable union between the believer and Christ. We've been grafted into Him. The life that we have is His life. The fruit that we bear Is His fruit. The blessing and the benefits that we enjoy are His blessings and benefits that He earned from the Father and now are granted to us. To be in Christ is to be infused with His life, spiritually connected to Him in such a way that our lives are effectually changed by the life that flows through Him and into us even though before we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Like a branch that is separated from the true vine, separated from the trunk. it There is no life in that branch. We, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as we'll get to in Ephesians 2 verse 1. But now that, that branch, which was dead and lifeless on its own, what has happened? That branch has been grafted into the vine of life, which is Jesus Christ. And now the life that is in Christ flows into that branch. And now that branch begins to to bud through the life that is in his blood. Amen? Amen. (laughs) For it is in the blood that there is life and why that the blood must pay atonement. Amen? And there are benefits to being grafted into Christ, right? That branch which was lifeless and dead is now alive and blooming. That branch which had no fruit and and could not bear fruit now begins to bear fruit because it's grafted into that 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 true vine. And these are the blessings and promises that Paul unpacks for us here in these verses. And so what are the blessings? They they speak even further to our identity. So we are, I want you to hear this, we are what? We are in, who are we in? We're in Christ. Okay, you got it? So who are we in? We are in Christ. That's number one. Secondly, we are justified. We are justified justified. You can see this in verses 4 and 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4, it says that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And in verse 7, it says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. You see, because of God's own holiness and righteous justice, us being justified was not something that God could simply declare over us, right? He, he, he spoke the universe into existence, but when it came to making us innocent, it was not something that he could simply say, innocent. There was work that had to be done. Why? Because God in His holiness and His righteousness even says of Himself, and it's repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, that He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. God is so holy and so righteous that if sin was to go unpunished, His wrath would, could not help but be poured out on those who were sinners and they would be destroyed. And so we needed someone or something that could stand in between us and God that could take on the wrath of God and absorb the wrath of God for us and in our place. That is what we call propitiation and Jesus is our propitiation. A complete and total wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us and in our place where He stands between us and the wrath of God. He takes all of the wrath of God on so that for those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, there is not one drop of God's wrath left over for them. Praise God. Yes. Hallelujah. I love that doxology is coming out of that, out of you right now. Yes. Praise God. Praise God. And remember that redemption is deliverance by payment. If you want to see an example of how God says that He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, look at Nineveh. You see, in Nineveh, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches the gospel. They repent. And what does God do? He Relents. And anyone in the Old Testament who ever repents, do you understand that their repentance and their faith in God is really a future-looking faith in Jesus Christ? Anyone who God declares righteous in the Old Testament, He is declaring righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, but it is a forward-looking faith, much in the same way that our faith today is a backward-looking faith to the cross of Jesus Christ. But something happened with Nineveh. They repented. God relented the judgment that he was going to pour out on them. And then if you'll turn just a few books to the right in the Old Testament, you'll get to this book called Nahum. And in Nahum, we find out that just a couple of generations later, Nineveh goes back to her old ways, goes back away from the Lord, and God brings judgment against Nineveh and destroys Nineveh. But that judgment is something that we do not have to fear. Why? Because where Nineveh was called to repent, they had no propitiation for them. But Christ has become a propitiation for us. A price had to be paid in order for the very people that God had chosen to be delivered and freed, to be justified before Him. Jesus Christ died for our sins and He was raised for our justification. Because we are in Christ, Jesus' substitutionary atonement through His perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection for us and in our place, God justifies us before Him as if we had never sinned. And that's what justification means. It's essentially saying, just as if I had never sinned. That's justification. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are... Do you hear it? For those who are in, in Christ Jesus Romans 5, 1-3, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we sang it this morning, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you are in Christ, then you are also justified. So our identity is this, we are in Christ and we are justified. Thirdly, we are also adopted. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. John 1.12, in the beginning of his gospel account, John points us to adoption when he says... That as many as received Him, Him being Christ, He gave the power to become the sons of God. God has, by a gift of grace, through the means of faith in His Son Jesus, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, adopted us as His children. This means that not every person born on the earth today is a child of God in the same way. We are, all of us, every person conceived in the womb, made in the image of God, and are image bearers of Him. But it is only those who by grace through faith believe in Christ and are grafted into Him that become the children of God through adoption. And if we are in Christ and we have been justified and we are adopted, then we find a new federal head, a new familial and paternal representative in place of Adam. And why did this adoption take place? Well, what does it say in verse 5? It is according to the purpose of His will. Now, why does this matter? This, This really, really matters. Why does it matter? I want you to think about adoption. Think about if you've ever known anyone who has adopted, and there are some in here that have adopted and are going through the process of adoption. Think about adoption and recognize that the child did not come to them, right? In the process of adoption, the child does not go around town uh, looking for uh, parents to elect for themselves, right? No. Rather, what happens? Parents go and they elect for themselves children to be adopted, Yes, even in our natural system, that is the way that it works. The child did not come to them. He or she did not petition for them to come out of their comfortable lives and expend the energy necessary to adopt them. And they did not adopt based on any knowledge of good in that child, but simply based on the fact that they knew God had given them love in their hearts for this child, especially when parents are adopting infants. Amen? But imagine if years down the road, right, so we have some in this room that are in the process of adoption, some that have adopted, and, and we know some of these kids. Imagine if years down the road, you're, you're with these kids, and they've grown up a little bit, and you hear them talking, and you hear them talking to someone, maybe their friends, about how they were adopted. And imagine if you heard the words coming out of their mouth that they started taking credit for their own adoption. Imagine if you heard them saying, yeah, you know, I I heard that there are these parents that would adopt you if you just showed up, and so I, you know, I... I I begged for some money on the side of the road, and then I hitchhiked because I knew if I could just get to their door and knock on the door, they'd let me come in and be their kid. And so, you know, that's what I did. And it was really hard. I had to, I had to like, beg for money. I put, you know, uh, I was a, a pen handler on the side of the road, you know, I was like three years old, like asking for coins and loose change, and got a bus ticket and, and made it nearly out to their house. I had the address. I just had to make it to the address, and, and then I had to hitchhike my way uh, to the home, and then and I went and knocked on the home and said, here I am, now you have to adopt me. I mean, I, I pray, I hope that we would, we would say, hey, hey, buddy, hey, why don't you come over here real quick for a second? Let's talk. You see, I, I was there. I remember the pain that was gone through to adopt you. I remember the tears that were cried. I remember the price that was paid because let me tell you something, brother. Adoption ain't cheap. I remember the times of prayer as we gathered around your mom and dad as they were expending Everything that they had to do, they were fighting in court and they were, they were going up against people that wanted to keep you from them. And they said, no, this is our child and you will not take them. We are going to adopt them and we'll go to whatever lengths we have to go because they're ours. You need to remember that, right? It would, it, would be, it would be blasphemous almost for us to hear a child talk like that. Yeah, you know, it was, it was all me. I did it. You know, I showed up and they had to adopt me. You'd be compelled to correct them and remind them that they had nothing to do with it. They were adopted in love while they were in a completely helpless state. And you would be compelled to remind them that if their adoption had depended upon them, they would still be orphans. So you're going there already, right? The same is true about our adoption. our adoption by the Father in Christ, it would be a tragedy if we believed that somehow our adoption was on us. That we somehow did something so that God had to adopt us. It does not work that way. For it is only in realizing the length and the breadth of the efforts that God went to in adopting you that you will begin to appreciate His love. It is only in understanding how desperate you are and were without him that you will worship him in the way that he deserves. In church, there are so many Christians today taking credit for their own adoption and thereby worshiping themselves. And I can only hope that they are simply deceived, self-deceived, And not just frauds, pretending to be someone's child that they are not, and using somebody else's daddy's name. So how do we know if we are adopted sons and daughters of God? Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. with him Now, let's, let's touch this because we talked about it last week. Again, another verse that at first glance may threaten your security. Did you hear it? Provided we suffer with Him. Right? Provided we suffer with Him. So we must ask the question, is this passage of Scripture threatening our security in God? Or is it? Is it threatening our security in whatever things we have placed around us and in our lives to insulate us from suffering? I would say it's the latter. That it is threatening the things that we have placed in our lives to insulate ourselves from suffering. It, it is a threat against every barrier of insulation. Because here is the truth, church you will suffer. The question is, will you suffer with Him? Will you suffer with Him? And so speaking of security, that leads us to our next point. We are in Christ, we are justified, we are adopted, and we are secure. Psalm 127 verses 1 through 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. God gives rest to those he loves, and it's not the sleep of those who finally find a way to ignore impending doom. Right? That's the sleep that I had in high school. Can I get a witness? Right? Like, you know the report card's coming. You know what it's going to say. And you somehow find a way to so put it out of your mind that you sleep peacefully at night. Right, like That, that was the, the sleep that I had in high school. That's not the sleep that God gives to His beloved. It's not this ability to somehow put out of our minds impending doom. Rather, it is the rest of those who lie down knowing that the city is safe, that the house is secure, and that their future is certain. Not because they have toiled, but because God has. Not because they are watching for every detail, but because God is watching over them. In Christ, we have been grafted into Him by grace through faith. Then our future is as secure as He is. Do you want to know how secure your future is? If you are in Christ, if you've been grafted into Him, then your future is as secure as Christ is. How secure is Christ? He is seated at the right hand of the Father where he has, is making every enemy his footstool. Right. That's secure. It doesn't get much more secure than that. Seated on the throne, reigning as king, feet kicked up, and your enemies as the footstool. That is pretty secure. And if you are in Christ, you are just as secure as he is. Amen? Which means what, church? We can stop lying in bed awake at night wondering. We can stop lying in bed awake at night tossing to and fro, worrying about where we will spend eternity. Once you are in Christ, you are His. You will always be in Christ. He will never cast you out, John chapter 6. You can never be separated from His love, Romans chapter 8. Those who are justified remain justified, Romans chapter 5. Those who are forgiven remain forgiven, 1 John chapter 1. Those who are innocent will never be declared guilty, Galatians chapter 5. Amen? Why? Why? Because the Holy Spirit will never abandon those whom he has indwelled. Why? Verse 13, Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the what? Guarantee. Guarantee. Who is the what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is our seal. And His seal has been placed in us as a guarantee for all that is ours in Christ. And so if the Spirit were to abandon us, it would, be, it would mean that God had not kept His word. And as Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that He should lie. Christian you do not need to fear do not fear that God will grow tired of you isn't that something that 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 as humans we we wrestle with any married people ever said to their spouse at some point in the last many years you sure you're not tired of me yet I have right why because we know ourselves and we know that as human beings that sometimes we grow weary of each other. Praise God that he is not a man, that he should lie, nor that he should grow weary of those whom in love he predestined before the foundation of the world to adopt as his children. His love never ends. His love never ends. It never fails. It never gives up. He knew everything about you before he chose you. Every mistake, every failure. He did not choose you because he foresaw that you would pull out of it. He chose you to rescue you from it and love you through it and to be your salvation in the midst of it. He knew everything you would ever do long before he sent his son to die for you and so if you are in Christ you are justified you are adopted and you are secure stop running from him if you're secure then stop running from him when you sin run to him rather than from him he already knows and he still loves you yes God disciplines those he loves but the discipline is for when you are running He disciplines those He loves, and those who love submit to that discipline and find the love of their Father. If you are secure, then quit hiding from community and accountability with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are secure, then quit holding other people's sin over them. If you are secure, then that means you have been forgiven in Christ. Therefore, you also ought to forgive. For if you cannot forgive, it may be that the love of Christ and the forgiveness of God are not in you at all. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Not just the one who has forgiven them, but also all those who need his forgiveness as well. So we are in Christ. We're justified. We're adopted. We're secure. And that means we are free. Look at verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What does redemption mean, church? Redemption means deliverance by payment. What does it mean? It means deliverance by payment. You are free, but to appreciate this freedom, you must understand your enslavement. You were born in sin, Psalm 51 verse 5 says, conceived in iniquity. We are not born tabula rosa. We are not born clean slates. We are born in sin. As far from God as we will ever possibly be in that moment, we are born in sin. And it's why every single person born needs a Redeemer. You were born in sin. And even if you are in Christ, you may still wrestle with the presence of sin, causing you to at times be a slave to what others think about you, or making you care more about the approval of men than of God. Perhaps you even live chained by the shackles of addiction to destructive substances or behaviors, or you're just stuck in patterns of sinful behavior and selfish desires. Apart from Christ, this is our only lot. Apart from Christ, that is all we can ever hope for. And apart from Him, we will only and always seek what we want, not what God wants. But Jesus didn't just come to remove the penalty of sin from us, did He? He came also so that the power of sin might begin to be removed from us. He came also so that one day the presence of sin would be completely removed from us. And so if you are in Christ, then you have been set free from the law of sin and death. You've been given new life and you are now free to live unto Christ. You have been reckoned as crucified through the death of Christ on the cross. Your punishment and execution has been carried out. And you, hear me, you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. Let that sink in a little bit. If all of your sin past, present, and future, has been put onto Christ, if He truly has become our propitiation and our expiation, if He truly is the substitutionary atonement for us, and all of our sin was imputed to Him, and all of His righteousness has been imputed to us, and if God looks at the sacrifice of Christ, and reckons us as crucified with Him, Galatians 2 chapter, uh, verse 20 says what, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is No longer I who live, but he who lives in me. And this life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. If we are crucified with him, then that means our sentence has been carried out and we cannot be tried for the same crime twice. Amen. What does that mean? That means the gavel has come down, the sentence has been declared. And the judge looks to us, and what does he say? You are free. You are free. You're a free man. John 8, 34 through 36, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said to them, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Hear security in those words. Verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? The Bible is clear. All that belong to God in Christ, He has given the Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of His Son. Your heart of stone is exchanged for a heart of flesh and He has promised to begin the process of changing your desires. We call this sanctification. Before Christ, you could only choose what to do, what you wanted, but now, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, you are free to choose what God wants. And do you see the difference? If you are in Christ, then you are free, free from the dominion of sin. Jesus did not just free us from the penalty of sin, but He is freeing us from the power of sin. And if you are in Christ, then you are free to stop sinning. Hear me say that again. If you are in Christ, you are free to stop sinning. And you have the power to overcome sin and to do those things that are good. Does that mean you will ever stop sinning completely? Yes! Yes, 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 but when? When you stand before your maker and you look in your Savior's eyes for the first time, not only will the penalty of sin have been removed, not only will the power of sin completely be removed, but the presence of sin will finally and completely be removed so that there is no more insecurity, no more lying, no more hiding, no more shame, no more guilt, no more anything. You will enter into the presence of complete love and love will drive away fear and you will live in complete complete freedom and joy in your Redeemer. Amen. Will you ever quit sinning? Yes, 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 yes. Is that time now? No, no, no. No, it is not. This side of heaven, we will remain simul justus peccator, as Martin Luther would say, simultaneously saint and sinner. We will wake up Every morning, sinners in need of a Savior. And we will lie our heads down at night in the sweet rest and sleep of a God who loves us, reckoned as saints because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us and in our place. So we're in Christ. We're justified. We're adopted. We're secure. We're free. And yet... We're unfinished. This is where we were the last couple of weeks in verse 11 and verse 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And then you get to verse 14 and what does it say? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that inheritance until you acquire possession of it. We must understand that this work of the application of redemption to our lives is an already not yet work. And if we do not understand that, then we will fail to see God working in this way. You are unfinished. I am unfinished. We are unfinished. And that should give every single one of us hope this morning. Not only are we unfinished, but none of us are at the same level of completion. Each one of us is being worked on at the pace and the precision of the Master. Christ has saved you, if you, by grace, through faith, have come to Him. And yet you still need saving every day. Christ has begun a relationship with you, yet you often run away. Christ has redeemed you, yet you still run back to old sins and old ways and still even find new ways to do it as well. And so do I. This is why we must remember who and whose we are. This is why we we must preach the gospel of Christ's redemption and salvation to ourselves every single day. And it's why we will preach it here every single week. So that the story of Christ and his redemption can become the dominant story of our lives. And give us the new identity that is ours in Christ. We must remember that if we are in Christ, then we are alive. The dead branch has been grafted into the true vine. And if we are in Christ, then we are justified, and that means we are forgiven. And if we are in Christ, then that means we are adopted, which means that we are sons and daughters of the most high God. And if we are in Christ, that means that we are secure, secure as he is. And if we are secure, then the only way that we can be secure is in his love. It means that church, we are loved by God. And if we are in Christ and we are free, and if we're free, that means we have been empowered. And yes, we are unfinished. But we are guaranteed all as a work of the Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And I say with Paul this morning in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God, may we know that truth this morning. May you apply it to our hearts. Even this morning, God, as we come to the table, we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, may this truth be applied to our hearts that though we are unfinished, you will be faithful to see the work that you have begun in us through to completion, even to the day of Christ Jesus' return. Would you stand with me this morning? As you stand and as we begin to enter back into worship i want you to think about your identity in christ think about who god is and what he has done for you and what it means about who you are and maybe you even need to ask yourself that question who who am i in christ am i in christ and if you Come to the conclusion this morning that you are not in Christ and hear the words of Jesus Himself when He said, If anyone would come to Me, I would in no wise cast him out. He promises that if you would just come to Him, come to Him and say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Will you save Me? The answer is yes, because He will not cast out anyone who comes to Him in faith, believing. So I command you this morning by the Word of God, repent of your sin, believe by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and come to Jesus your Savior. Be rescued by Him, and find a new identity whereby you can be grafted into Christ, the true vine. Amen? God bless you as you come to the table this morning. Feed on Christ in your hearts by faith.